0: Somewhere around half of the world's eight billion people live in rural areas. And by rural, I mean they are farther away from centers of wealth that have influenced societies and made their lives easier. Wealth's impact on society has an immediate effect on Christian missions, and so that is why we are discussing it this evening. When a culture or a society, when a region is wealthy, or influenced by wealth, it is effective in a missiological way. Now statistics statistics change over the years, but as best we can follow, there are an estimated 20 million South Africans who live in rural areas as opposed to urban areas. In fact, in a majority of countries, African countries, more than 50% live in rural areas. And my son asked me, how do you know that? There are several websites that have statistics for world population. One is called Worldometer, worldometer worldometer.com. That website is collected and gathered together by a number of statisticians, And their work is used in many countries around the world, including Canada and the UK and other countries in Europe. Another website is called World Bank Data. The World Bank is a bank that is in connection with the United Nations. And they have population data for countries around the world. A third source is the CIA Factbook. The CIA is the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States government. Now, personally, I think that, that agency should not exist. It should close its doors tomorrow and save all the taxpayers' monies and give their stolen taxes back to the people so that they can buy Bibles for their children and send missionaries around the world. But as long as it is open, we can go on their website and use their statistics that they have gathered. Each of those websites puts the percentage of rural as very high. The World Bank says it's 44%. Worldometer says it's 72%. CIA Factbook says it's around 50%. It depends what you count as rural. Before tonight, I would like us to discuss poorer areas and ask practically, how can we evangelize? How can we plant churches in poorer areas? So the lecture this evening will begin with defining Poor areas. What does it mean to be poor? I'll try to define that with nine factors. Then we'll look at why is it hard to plant churches where it is poor? And we'll look at a number of factors there. Then I'll try to give you 17 steps to planting churches in the rural areas. And finally, some pieces of advice. For implementing the steps that I've just listed. So let's begin with the beginning. And let's try to examine and define it. Because if half of the world does live in the rural areas. And if we are commanded to go into all the world. Then we need to understand why is it that missionaries typically and historically do not go to the poor areas in comparison to urban or population centers. So when we look to the spiritual state of the rural areas, we are doing nothing more than the Apostle Paul, who said in Galatians chapter 2, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. We want to remember the poor. We want to not forget them. Lord helping me, I want to have my life dedicated to reaching rural areas, rural Africa. And when I say rural, I mean just this, point number one. Now, when we attempt to define rural or poverty, I'll use those two interchangeably, rural and poverty. We've got to understand, first of all, that we cannot be precise. Now, some people like precision. We all like precision when we can have it. But it's not possible to be precise about the word poor because the word poor refers to relations of peoples. So that in America, you might be poor only owning two cars. And in India, you might be poor in a different setting. If you're in Johannesburg and you're poor, you might be one style of living. And in the bush in Malawi, you might be a different kind of lifestyle. In fact, the man who's in Malawi might look to the poor man in, let's say, Brazil and say, your life looks wonderful to me. So we have to realize, first of all, poverty is always relative. It's always in relation to other people groups. When we say poor, we mean poor in comparison to the people around you who are considered rich. Now we have another problem because that phrase, the people around you, has changed with the advent of technology and globalization. Now that you can fly around the world, or now that you can turn on your phone, you can download TikTok and see the way people live all around the world. Now, if people are living that way all around the world, then you have understanding of the way they're living. And so now you're in relation to them. And remember, poverty is defined in relationship to others. So you may be chatting on Facebook Messenger with someone who's much wealthier than you. Now, you may not have thought yourself poor until you were chatting on Facebook Messenger with someone in Italy who is much wealthier than you. So we need to define what is it that makes someone poor. The divide between the rural and the urban area can be seen on a sliding scale, whose tracks are travel, architecture, and wealth. You can understand these three categories just by driving through an area or by seeing pictures of an area. Travel, three marks, few roads that are efficient to travel on. So there may be roads to get there, but those roads may be filled with potholes. Those roads may be gravel. Those roads may wash out in the rain. Those roads may wind through rocky hills or mountains those roads may have criminals on them or police who act like criminals. If the roads are not efficiently traveled on, that is, if you can't move quickly from one place to the other, then that's going to affect business. When business is affected, the businesses don't want to send their trucks because it costs them more money to deal with police traps and criminals and potholes. So number one, few roads that are efficiently traveled. Number two, Few cars permanently in the area. All the areas of Zimbabwe know what a car is, but not all the areas in Zimbabwe have one car per house. Some may not have one car per section or one car per village. So they may have cars who travel through the villages, but they may not have cars inside the villages. And that means that the people inside those villages do not have easy transport to get to the goods that they want and to come back with those goods. So they might not be able to produce and reproduce wealth as quickly as they would like to in other places. Number three, few petrol stations. Travel communicates and promotes the poverty of an area based on roads, cars, and petrol stations. We could add other things in there like places to buy spares, Or people who can repair those cars. But this points us in the right direction. When travel does not have airstrips, airports, bus stations, nice roads. When the only way to access a place is by a hike of three days or a canoe ride up the river. That's going to affect the poverty and wealth. Number two, category number two or slide number two, architecture. So when you drive through a village, what do you see? Do you see few buildings with more than one story? If the majority of the buildings are one story, that's going to tell you something about the wealth in that area. Because if you are trying to build a successful business, you may want to have a taller building so that you can save the space that you have. You only have so much space. No one's making any more earth. All the earth that there is has been made. And when you use up your portion of that earth, you're done. You're going to have to either sell what you have in order to buy more earth from someone else who doesn't want to sell because there's no more earth being made. Or you're going to build up. But if you come into an area and they're not building up, then that means they don't have a lot of wealth. They don't have a lot of wealth in order to increase their own buildings. And they don't have a wealth to increase the businesses that would make those buildings necessary Number two, few buildings with electricity. That is, number two, underneath category number two. Few buildings with electricity. Electricity is essential for increasing wealth and decreasing poverty. Because with electricity, you have communication. And with electricity, you can work longer hours. Furthermore, you can refrigerate things. So you can sell products that are refrigerated and you can receive products that require refrigeration. Without electricity, communication will greatly hamper the growth of wealth and it will discourage people from coming in. Who wants to move to an area where they can't communicate with those that they came from? They moved in from a certain area and they want to talk to their wife and children and brothers and sisters and they can't. Or... Maybe they just came there to work and they want to talk to their suppliers in order to get more batteries or bolts or tires. But they can't talk to them because there's no electricity. Number three, buildings with toilets inside. Now, this doesn't necessarily increase poverty, but it does discourage new immigration. If there's not waste removal for sewage, people are not comfortably going to leave a place that has the comforts of sewage um, sewage services and go to a place that doesn't. Number three, track number three, slide number three, category number three, wealth. And again, there are three headings or three subcategories underneath it. Wealth, few jobs that pay a monthly salary. So in a rural area or in a poor area, there may be jobs, but not jobs that pay a monthly salary. Or like one young man, working in one of the churches we're planting, he's making 1,200 Rand a month. Where can you live? Where can you work? What can you buy with 1,200 Rand a month? How could you ever save up money to build a house? So in a rural or in a poor area, you have few jobs that pay a monthly salary, which means all the best people who want jobs are going to run to where the jobs are. Number two, underneath category number three, Few people who know English. I wrote English here, but you could say Italian or Spanish or Chinese. Any language that is a language of commerce. Few people who know a language where you can earn a degree in. You can study to be a lawyer in Italian. You can study to be a doctor in Afrikaans. But you cannot do that in Zulu. And you cannot do that in Shona. So if you come to an area where few people know a language where you can advance yourself or facilitate trade, that area is going to be poor. It has nothing to do with racism. It has nothing to do with people don't like those people. It has only to do with they want to make money, they want to make wealth, and they want to advance themselves. And if you can't advance yourself speaking a language that no one uses to advance themselves, then there's not going to be much wealth there. Subpoint number three, underheading number three, few people who own books. Books are expensive. Books are seen by many as a luxury. That was different from Charles Spurgeon. who recommended people to sell their shoes to buy books, young preachers. But many people look at books as a luxury. I think what's rather the luxury is the mindset that desires to read the books. Sometimes you could get books, but the problem is, like the lion, you've heard me use the illustration, right? Of the lion who's set, um, who has set in front of him raw meat with blood dripping on it, and then salad with a delicious Caesar dressing. Which one will the, which one will the lion take? The meat. He's going to take that meat. He's not going to try to pick up the fork. And say, so, let me eat a little salad here. He's not interested in the salad. And if you set it in front of him a thousand times, one thousand times in a row, he's going to choose that salad. The meat. Why? Because his heart does not desire the salad. And the same thing would be true for a desire for reading. If you set in front of a person who has not learned The beauty and glory and comfort and happiness, the pleasure, the true leisure that comes from reading good books. If you set before that man a flat screen TV the size of this whiteboard, or you set before him over here some really good books by Martin Meredith, which one is he going to pick? A thousand times in a row, he'll pick the screen because screens require no effort. They are immediate. They require no discipline, no effort. They are suited for the poor. The poor do not take effort to change and advance themselves or else they would not be poor. poor. Unless they are hindered by the government or criminals. But people are poor systemically and repeatedly and generationally, not because someone else pushed them down unless they are in a place like Russia or China where the communist evil, wicked dictatorship crushes them. But outside of being crushed by the government, as long as the government is keeping off the criminals and as long as the government isn't the criminal itself, then the only explanation for the poverty of people is that they have not that inner drive to raise themselves from it because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And God did not make the world with the scarcity of wealth He made man and crowned him with glory and honor. And unless he's blocked by the government or criminals or demons, then the only one blocking him is himself. Well, what is poverty? It is the the collection of these factors to different degrees. So you might have, I listed nine there, three sets of three. You might have factor number two poured in a lot into the bowl and factor number five sprinkled in the bowl. You might have factor number six with a little bit in the bowl, two spoonfuls in the bowl, but factor number eight buckets in the bowl. When these factors are collected together, you're going to have this few, this scarcity, few roads, few jobs, few buildings, And that fewness emphasizes that there's really no clear line between the rich and the poor again, because you can change few to be few plus one and then few plus two. And at what point does few plus three become many? And that's our goal is to raise people from poverty. That is is one way to look at our goal. Our goal is to plant churches, but ultimately we want those churches to be planted with men and women who are thoughtful and godly and wise and hardworking and that will raise up out of poverty. We don't like poverty and we don't want to have it. It's a mark of sin and Satan. There will be no poverty in the kingdom of God and there will be no poverty in heaven. So let us right now strive as best we can for that same thing. So these are some of the factors that encourage poverty and discourage wealth. And so let's go to the next step. What does poverty do to missions? What does it do to the gospel? And I want to argue that the spread of the gospel is impeded by poverty. Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, missionaries do not want to go to poor places. Missionaries are people. And if they can evangelize poor people in Dubai, I'm sorry, if they can evangelize sinners in Dubai, where they have a car and they have milk and cheese, where they can buy with a visa card, Where they can have a tiled floor and air conditioning in their house. And they can still evangelize Muslims who've never heard the gospel. Or if they can go to the middle of Chad. Where it's very poor and there's nothing to buy. And there's no shops around. And if you've got a wife and children, you're going to have to subject them to those hard conditions. A lot of missionaries say, someone really needs to go to Chad. But I think the Lord's calling me to Dubai. Since life in the rural areas is by definition farther removed from the influence of wealth, then missionaries will have a difficult time getting their children to the doctor when they need it. Or getting their children the educational books that they need. Or getting the wife to have the standard of living that she's been accustomed to having. So many missionaries, when they're going out, will say, I'm going to a city. I'm going to an urban area. And they'll say, it's strategic. They'll say, in the city, there's, say, 10 million people in Johannesburg. And that's the same number of people that's in all of Limpopo. So why don't I go to a concentrated area like Johannesburg where I can reach millions upon millions of people rather than go to Limpopo where they're all spread out in little villages? So the answer comes that they are being strategic. But for whatever reason, missionaries say it is a very small percentage of Christian missionaries who leave wealthy areas and come to stay in poorer areas. Missionaries don't want to go where poverty is. Number two... The men with the most gifts and the most character leave poverty. If you have a man who's very clever and very gifted, and he's living north of Harare by two hours, he's living in the bush in a rural place, and he sometimes travels to the city and he sees what city life could be, and then he sees pictures of what city life could be in Johannesburg and in Europe. If that man is hardworking, where is he going to go? First to Harari. Then to Ghauteng, then he's going to move to England. He's going to move wherever he can for his wife and his children to be able to live a life that will allow him to prosper. But but that gives us a difficulty because that man is driven, that man is hardworking, that man is focused, that man has a goal, the right goal, that man wants to take care of himself, that man wants personal responsibility. Do all men have that same kind of drive? The men who don't have that drive are left in the village. So now you've got basically what some have referred to as a throwaway generation. A whole generation of people living in the rural areas. They don't have the kind of character that would be required to even raise themselves up. But there's a great many millions of them living like that. And our Lord Jesus loves them. And though they've been bound by all levels of demons... Ought not we as Christian missionaries say God is love and fill our hearts with love and go find those people and as our Lord said, other sheep I have, them also I must bring and there will be one fold and one shepherd. Are there not some of those other sheep in the rural areas of Nigeria and Ghana and Togo and Algeria and Limpopo province? The men with the most gifts and character tend to leave those areas. And that means that to make true disciples, manly men, active fathers, and faithful pastors is going to require a lot more work. Now we've got a difficulty because you can't have a reproducing church without faithful pastors. You can't have a reproducible church without active fathers. You can't have a reproducible church without true disciples. And you need these men to lead their homes and to lead society and to lead their towns to be the chiefs in their towns and in their villages and to pastor those churches. But if the best of your men have left and now the people that are left are going to take a lot more work to be raised to the same position, that all impedes the work of the gospel. If a missionary has 40 years, if not many missionaries stay for 40 years, if a missionary has 40 years and if with gifted men, he could train them in five years, Let's say he gets 10 men every five years. That's eight sets of five and 10 men per set. Eight times 10, he's going to train 80 men, let's just say. If a missionary stays for 40 years and trains 10 men every five years, then in our rude and crude illustration, he would be training 80 men over 40 years. But what if those best men have left so that now it doubles the amount of time it takes him to raise godly men? Now he's going to be raising, if he stays 40 years, which is rare, he's going to be helping 40 men. How many missionaries are there? How many villages are there? You'll see, without revival, it is a losing proposition. The population will triple in the time that he's helped 30 or 40 men into positions of godliness maturity and leadership. Number three, an attitude of hope. Is low in poor areas. Without the function of fathers and churches, poverty chills right down to the bones. It freezes the warm impulses toward optimism, self improvement, and personal responsibility. Men and women who grow up in poverty tend to think this is all there is and all there ever can be. I don't know how to get out of this and I can't get out of this. This is where I'm trapped. Have you seen that in people that you've known? People that you've lived with. They think to themselves, what can I do? Why would I be hopeful? The best I can hope, hope for is just to live and die in my little area. Starting life and ending life almost in the same position. But the Christian religion demands optimism. It demands passion. When Jesus says, whoever he is of you who does not forsake all he has, he cannot be my disciple... What man is going to do that without passion? Throw away everything and say, I cast myself on Christ. That's going to require a lot of passion, a lot of commitment and devotion. But we could go further. We could say, what about denying yourself, taking up your cross, following Christ? We could say, what about going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature? Those things require passion. Passion. The Christian life is a manly religion. It requires complete activity and devotion. So could anyone change from their useless lifestyle to a foreign and entirely spiritual culture without passion and zeal? But here's the problem. False religion amputates a man's ambition. So we need men with ambition in the Christian church, but in the rural areas, all the men with ambition left. Left. And they're in Joburg. It's very difficult to plant churches among poverty. Number four, infrastructure discourages the secondary elements that encourage the church. People can't buy Bibles. You come in and preach and say, you have Bibles, right? Open your Bible. You don't have Bibles. Okay, I'll be back next week. When I come back, go buy Bible. Wait, there's no shops that sell Bibles. Oh, and you can't read. One out of three of you can read, and you don't have any money. Okay, then, well, we have to fix this. We got, we, got, we, we got to get Bibles here to buy. We got to get jobs here for you to do. We got to start a school so you can learn to read. And what's worse is this. Some people have learned how to read in school, but their understanding of reading was only phonetic. Their understanding of reading was only pronouncing syllables understanding of reading did not go down to real reading, as Mortimer Adler describes in How to Read a Book, where you're meeting with the mind of the author. How many people have I talked to among the Tsongas who have said that they've read something, and then when they're done reading it, I'll ask the question, Can you tell me in your own words what he was saying? And then suddenly some form of embarrassment comes. Because the person is not able to tell me anything about what they just supposedly read. They didn't meet with the mind of the author. They didn't connect. They pronounced syllables that they were taught to pronounce on page. If you see an A, say A. If you see an E, say A. A, A, E, O, U. Now you're reading. Reading is a mindset that says I'm going to step out of myself. I'm going to walk over in this imaginary space. This abstract area called the realm of reading. And I'm going to walk up to the author whom I can't see. And I can only envision the author through the words that he's put on the page. I'm going to put my hand right out there and shake his hand. And then I'm going to converse with him. But he's not really here. I'm going to look at words and I'm going to converse with him through words written on a page. That's reading. Then I'm going to take back those ideas into my house. I'm going to wait for the next time I can get an author Another author, I'm not going to forget what I learned from last week's author, and taking all the things from my handshake with last week's author in the abstract realm of reading, I'm going to walk back, I'm going to journey back to reading, and then I'm going to shake the hand of another author, and I'm going to tell them what the other guy said. If you don't know how to read like that, you are going to discourage the growth of the church, because that kind of reading is required. You're going to have to walk into Moses, shake Moses' hand in Exodus, figure out what he was saying in those laws, and then go over and talk to David about it. And then from David, jump up to Isaiah, and then from Isaiah to the new covenant. And if you can't do all those handshakes, remembering what was said, connect, and most importantly, desiring to connect them. And that might be the most important thing. The infrastructure that's missing in poor places is that they are not desiring that. They do not hunger and thirst after knowledge. Number five, why is it difficult to plant churches in the rural areas? The nuclear family is less common in poorer places. The nuclear family is one man, one woman for one life. In my experience, in the rural areas, you commonly, at least these days, others can say what they will about the past. But these days, what I am seeing commonly is boys who can't pay lobola because they don't have jobs. So they commit fornication with the young lady and she's pregnant. They might stay with her for a year or two and then leave her. They'll find another girl and repeat the process. That girl will go on to repeat her process two or three or four more times. So that on the Lord's Day, just two days ago, I spoke to a man and a woman both of whom had multiple children by different partners, neither of whom were married to their partners and both of whom left their partners so that there is no nuclear family anymore. And that means that the children grew up without a man at home, which is why all through Africa, we have this confused and unbiblical idea that women can be pastors. Well, what idea would you have if you grew up in Homes without fathers. Or if there was a father who wasn't a strong, manly leader, who was both gentle and firm. Who was kind and loving, but unbending and righteous. If we don't have those things growing up, what do we expect when people get older? The nuclear family is less common in poorer areas. It was sad to me as I pondered the success that I've had In the villages where we're planting our new church, only to think on Sunday as I was coming home, how am I going to plant a church here? Even if I can get people to come, where will I ever get elders? Because a man can't be a pastor in a New Testament church unless he is able to lead his house well, having his children in obedience. How can he have his children in obedience when his children are spread out across the provinces? He doesn't live with his wife anymore. She doesn't love him or care about him or know who he is and he's far away she, or she's far away. How can, you, how can you have elders in a place like that? Well, these are some of the difficulties. Are there any questions about this before we get into the practical method for planting a church?